Welcome to the new Dalcrozian, the first and only podcast discussing the work of Emile Jacques Dalcroze as practiced in the 21st century. I'm Anthony Molinaro from Pittsburgh, PA, and with me is my co-host, Lauren Hodson. And I'm Lauren Hodson, living, teaching, breathing, everything else in Cleveland, Ohio. And our guest today, we've got a very special treat for you. We've got the one, the only, Dr. Jeremy Didis in the house. Really looking forward to sharing that interview with you. It was a wide-ranging interview, and um, I think you're really going to enjoy it. For sure. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at thenewdalcrozian at gmail.com, or make sure you like us on Facebook at Facebook slash thenewdalcrozian. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and rate us five stars. Hey, Anthony. Hey, Lauren. How's it going? Well, here we are on episode three of the new Dalcrozian. How do you, I can't how do you believe feel about it. that? Oh my, it's just, you know, it's just been, the response has been just great from everybody. I'm so glad um, people are enjoying the podcast all over the world, really. Um, we've got, I think uh, the last uh, data that I saw said that um, about 33% of the people listening are not in the United States. So I'm, you know, very encouraged by the uh, international response to the podcast. So a shout out to everybody across the world who's listening to us. Yeah, thanks for listening. So, you know, last uh, podcast, we um, shared an email from Melissa Tucker. And, you know, we have to do a little bit of a corrections and retractions here because I think we got something a little bit wrong there. Rewind. Uh, yeah, let's back it up and talk about that. So if you recall, um, Melissa Tucker pointed out that um, there was somebody who uh, was recording um, Dalco's episodes over the radio after World War II. And you and I both erroneously assumed that to be Heather Gell. We who did. We did know was uh, an Australian who was doing that, but apparently there was a Polish Dalcrozian um, educator in those in that period of time, same period of time after World War II in Poland, who was doing something very similar. And her name was Maria Wieman. I believe I'm saying that right. And Melissa Tucker pointed that out to us um, as uh, as a little bit of an error. Um, And she uh, sent me an abstract from a presentation from the ICDS uh, Mm. conference. And I just kind of share this with you guys right now. It says so. And and, um, uh, and Anthony, ICDS, for those listeners who might not know, is the International Conference of Dalcro's Studies. That's correct. Yes. Um, And I just, you know, had to learn that myself in the last podcast. So no shame if you didn't know that. Uh, And uh, anyway, so the the paper presents the history of radio broadcasts for children created by Polish Eurythmics teacher Maria Wieman. The idea of learning music from radio was not new, but it was the first time that Dalcro's Eurythmics was used as a method of long-distance learning. Radio broadcasts were aired for over 30 years and received a 1966 pre-Japan for the best children's radio program in the world. How about that? The paper presents the results of an analysis of the radio broadcast content and shows numerous types of teaching music through movement and improvisation. Children responded with movement while listening to the radio and reacted to the words of the radio speaker. So, you know, this was, it sounds like, sounds to me like there's probably some recordings available 
uh, of this work. Possibly. I'm going to have to reach out to the scholar who wrote the paper. Um, her name is in Polish, and I had some trouble pronouncing it, so I reached out to my friend Veronica Balewski to help me per, uh, pronounce the name. So she sent me a voice memo of this woman's name. Here it is. Oh, here it is. Katarzyna Foreska Vasco. Ah, so Katarzyna Foreska Vasco is the woman who wrote the paper. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Veronica. We'll post it on the Facebook page. Yeah, check it out. So I did hear from uh, several listeners who were somewhat unfamiliar with the Dow Crow's work, and this podcast is actually representing for them you know, some exposure to the work, which I think is a, a great uh, sort of uh, service that we can offer. But one of the things that people who are sort of new to the practice always notice, and the first thing that I hear from my students and the first thing I hear from the community is just simply that we don't wear shoes we in don't. rhythmics class. We typically don't. Yes. It's true. Yeah. People are, 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 are hung up on that to a certain degree. Um, and you know, I'll hear from, I'll, I'll hear from, um, students and parents who have you know, moved on after years and, and they'll say that the thing that they remember is that we didn't wear shoes. That's you know? right. Uh, you know, that's, uh, that's as, as much as they really hold on to. So, um, I, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I think as Dalcrozian practitioners, we just sort of gloss over it sometimes. Um, you know, we're accustomed to the fact that when we go to a Dalcros class, we're going to take our shoes off. But I, I, in my experience, it, it warrants some discussion and it's not the easiest thing to implement. And the first thing you have to ask yourself is why, why is it important? Why should you do it? Uh, I mean, what do you think, Lauren? What's the value of, of the shoes off? Yeah, let's get into it. So the value of not wearing shoes during a, uh, a movement experience, I liken it oftentimes to trying to, let's say, play your instrument while wearing fingerless gloves. Can you do it? Yes. Is it graceful? Not really. There's, there's something encumbering us from freely moving, and that's our goal in a, well, I'll say that's one of our goals in a Dalcros class, is to move freely. And when we wear shoes or socks or even just socks, we don't necessarily have that freedom of expression and freedom of motion. I think that's a, a good way to put it. When I, when I talk to the kids about it, I, I bring up a couple of other contexts in which they don't wear shoes and don't seem to think it's strange. And that's I, a good you point. Know, I, yeah. I, I'll ask the kids right away. I'll say, who takes gymnastics? And, and, you know, I always have a number of little girls who are in gymnastics and they'll raise their hand and I'll say, no, no, you don't wear shoes in gymnastics. And they'll say, no, I don't wear shoes. And I'll say, well, why not? And they'll talk about, you know, that, well, you need to be able to feel the balance beam. You yes. need to be able to, and I say, yeah, you're, you're more balanced. You're more graceful. You can move with more sensitivity yeah. when you're not wearing shoes. And, and so that's what I'm looking for, actually, is we play a lot with balance and we play a lot with that sort of graceful, um, expressive movement. And transfer and, of weight and all of those things that shoes really make it difficult. Yeah. And simply in other, other contexts I'll bring up are, are like Taekwondo or karate or, or um, I'll bring up uh, yoga. Um, I, I, I open it up that way when I talk about it. And that seems to kind of help bridge the gap a little bit and under, for them to understand why I might not want them to wear so shoes. So Anthony, I teach at a community arts school, which is a different teaching situation than a public school. And mm -hmm. for those who teach in public schools and would like to implement movement and uh, shoes and socks off, how, how 
um, I mean, I, I know teachers are wondering this, like how do you um, convince your, your school administrators to, to allow children to take their shoes and socks off and have a space safe for movement? Well, that's a great question. And let me actually just tell you the story about how it worked for me, because um, I think it's the best way in my, ex- just to talk about my experience Please, yeah. and I can't, everybody's experience is different. So when I first uh, took this particular public school job, I decided that I was going to have them go shoes off um, because I just felt that the I was going to get some support from the administration because my superintendent was a former music teacher mm. and was very supportive. And I, I had a beautiful room that was large. And I said, you know, this was the first position. This was seven or eight years ago. I said, this is the, I'm going to do a full Dalcro's, you know, experience here with these, with these students. Others, I've been in many other school situations across the country and I um, never felt like it was optimal conditions to really fully do Eurythmics. Either you were teaching, you know, going classroom to classroom or you were, um, you know, I was actually teaching instrumental early on. So I was using Dow Crow's activities, but it wasn't, we weren't fully kicking off our shoes and doing Eurythmics. But in this particular situation, I said, we're doing it. So um, in the way you phrase things, in the way you kind of word them matters here. So I didn't make a policy that Mm. they couldn't, that they had to take their shoes off, Mm. right? I just asked them to take their shoes off. And I said, you know, um, this is just what we do. And they would say, why do we have to do this? And I would explain why the, that, that 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 why we do it, and um, and then they would they would say, well, okay, you know, and then they just all went along with it. I mean, yeah. if you just, I it, think setting up that expectation of like this is what we do in this class, just like you mentioned in a gymnastics class or in a taekwondo class, if you don't make it weird and just you know it's just this is what we do. We take off our shoes and socks and we move and make it um, feel like a normal thing. I know that's easier said than done for those of our listeners who are saying, uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, and, I, um, and, I, but- and the other thing is you do it every day. So that's the other thing that I, um, that I encourage people. Don't just do it once in a while whenever it's an activity that you want to do. Like just every day. I mean, some days we might maybe not be yeah. doing big body movement and probably would be just as well to leave the shoes on. Wouldn't matter. Sure. But I still haven't taken the shoes off just as a procedure. And as a matter of course, there's also an advantage that when they're all taking their shoes off and entering the room, it's like entering a, you know, a, another reality for them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, Oh, now we're in this whole new paradigm, you know, I love that. our shoes are off and we're in this room and we're about to do these interesting activities. And I think there's a ritual to it that really takes them out of their routine and they, they like it. And, and this year when I had them keep their shoes on, many were disappointed and they were asking me, can mm. we take our shoes off? Can we take our shoes off? Mm. And it's, it's a, a very tricky thing, but the shoes off, I think it's worth doing if you can do it. And what I'm noticing this year in my practice um, with the the fact that I'm having them keep their shoes on because of the pandemic, um, that I'm, I'm really noticing right. the value of having them take their shoes off. I mean, the, the, the nature of their movement yeah, has changed right. um, very much. And, and so I am, can't wait to get back to the point where I can have them take their shoes off again. So Well, and we should mention too, even back in the day, uh, Monsieur Dalcroze himself uh, received some backlash for his students not wearing shoes in the early 20th century. You know, to see a, a woman's ankle back then was very, oh my goodness. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, to me, like I said, you you would do it. They, they, the kids go, they they go swimming, you know, in school. Right. They go they go right. over to the to the YMCA and, and have swimming class at my school. And I mean, geez, they're like you know wearing a swimsuit and a uh, and certainly taking their shoes off there. And uh, nobody seems to raise a fuss. But because in my class, I asked them to take their shoes off, it was like you know all of a sudden I was getting angry letters. <laughs> But it was it's worth it. And, and the, the, the truth is, though, once um, people saw the result of it, I think I always said, like, after I had my first choir concert, I'd never got one complaint again. Wow. Once people saw the result, they were like, oh, this guy knows what he's doing. Maybe we should just leave him alone. It was only because I was new and they, I just came in out of nowhere and was totally going off the board with stuff that they had never heard of. They right. were they were like what is going on and and then as soon as I had a concert and they got to see me and see what you know what what the results were right and the results are are enormous I mean the results yeah. of using a Eurythmics curriculum in your in your public school music practice are I mean tangible results and you you can see them right away yeah but that'll be yeah. a great topic for another day. Hey, Anthony. So today we are interviewing one of my very favorite people. I know. He's a great guy. <laughs> he is. He is. Now, you know, you, you know, I haven't worked with him as close as you have. I, I have attended a couple of workshops of his. I mean, he's, he's unbelievable. He's a great yeah. guy and a great teacher. And, um, you know, it, it's a great, great get for our podcast, to be honest with you. Yeah, absolutely. We're we're so glad to have him on and to be able to talk about um, you know, a really interesting topic which we'll get into in a little bit. But uh so we're really we're really, you know, leading you by the nose here, I know. <laughs> so <laughs> So where did you where did you meet Jeremy? Jeremy and I met actually many, many years ago. I think I was a uh, I think I was 14 or 15 years old. I don't know if you know this story. Oh my do gosh, you, I don't you know. know See, I mean, that's yeah. why I'm asking you. Yeah. I know you guys go way back. We do, we do. So I met him when I was um, attending a piano institute. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and I attended this institute every year at the um, University of Louisville. And he came as the workshop um, instructor for, for Dalcro's um, Eurythmics. And he came and I was, I was a 14 or 15 year old and it was kind of like, okay, we're moving, what's happening? And then I remember very clearly this memory of skipping and feeling like, you know, it's funny that it's skipping because that's what we're going to talk about later in his, in his bit. But I remember this, this memory very clearly of skipping and not being able to hold back a smile. I was just like so filled with joy for skipping and responding to the music that I was hearing. And so I, I met him many years ago. Um, when it came time for me to kind of choose my career and apply for schools, I was like, you know, I, th I think I want to do music. And so one summer when he came back, um, I had lunch with him and I said, hey, you know, give me some schools to think about. Well, the one I chose and ended up going to was his alma mater, which is Baldwin Wallace uh, Conservatory of Music, which also happens to be where um, he went to school. And wait, did I already say that? Okay, well, yeah, he went to school there. <laughs> um, and and we also share um, a very beloved teacher there as well, Mary Debrea Grindall. 
And so after that, um, after I graduated, I decided I wanted to move out to Colorado and study with him at the, the Dalcro School of the Rockies. And so I was there for about three years. Wow. So there's your Oh, there's your yeah, that's, that's your whole, uh, yeah. the whole journey with you and Jeremy right there. That's great. That's right. Jeremy Didis holds the Diplôme Superior, which is a doctoral equivalent in Switzerland from the Institute Jacques Delcroix. And um, what else should we say about him? He did a doctorate in piano performance. He's also taught music theory. He's done so many cool things. Um, yeah, he runs a full training center and children's program in Denver, Colorado. So if you live in Denver, Colorado, or if you don't, he does a lot of online stuff too, which he'll talk about. But you can check it out. All right. So without any further delay, we present Dr. Jeremy Didis. Hi, Jeremy. Welcome. We're so glad to have you. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I, uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up with uh, Jeremy is he has been doing so much online teaching. He's been doing it for years, virtual teaching. When did you get started virtual teaching, Jeremy? Well, I think it was probably around 2011, I think. It was in the fall of 2011. Um, I had a student who lived in Durango, Colorado, and she really wanted to do Delcro's teacher training. And Durango is in the lower left-hand corner. It's the southwest corner of the state. And so because it's in the southwest corner of the state, it's uh, so far away. You, you actually have to take um, like down across the bottom and then come up the state. And so it's like a good six hour drive. And so we started doing weekly lessons using Skype at that time. And then she would come in once a month and we would do intensives for like four hours on a uh, Saturday. And uh, it was great fun. It was a really good uh, foray into this whole online learning realm. Well, that's great. So you got started with that one student, and then you what? You grew out from there and decided that it had validity, and you started working on it uh, more. Yeah, I ended up having different people that came into the program that uh, were not from the city of Denver, or even if they were in the state of Colorado, they were just too far away, and so this offered another way for them to get the training. It also happened sometimes where somebody was, un was, they weren't feeling well, and so it worked out really well that they could stay home and still have a lesson, but they didn't have to worry about passing germs and that kind of thing. So it really started pretty simply, kind of as a big experiment, and then it just started to grow. And um, uh, the more that we started doing it, the more we started realizing that, no, actually, there's a lot of validity, there's a lot of potential that can happen in this training. I think that there's a lot of the Delcro's work that happens in the Delcro's hall, moving, interacting, all of that. But there's also a lot of training that has to happen in a practice room by yourself, and you just have to work on stuff. And that aspect is what we try to really focus on. So for example, for improvisation, we focus a lot on progressions, we focus a lot on the logistics of playing for movement, um, the, the ways in which you plan to give a signal in an activity, the different strategies involved, where do you say it, how do you say it, all of those kinds of things. They can be worked on virtually and 
then when you do get together, all of that uh, logistical training comes to fruition really nicely because then they, you can just focus on the movers. So it's like, uh, you know, I mean, with, in light of what happened with the pandemic and with COVID, I mean, you were, you were prepared. I mean, this was no sweat for you. And, and, uh, and I think early on in the, uh, when the lockdowns happened and we all had to kind of face this reality, boy, us in the Dow Coast community, we were so thankful to have your sort of uh, guidance and wisdom at that moment. I know for me, it was super helpful. Oh, well, that's really sweet of you to say. I, um, you know, I think that it was a learning curve for me too, though. There were things that I picked up along the way as a result of the pandemic. Zoom, for example, I had heard about, um, but I had never actually used it. And it was because I was asked to go and participate in a Zoom meeting at one point that I was like, oh my God, you can see everyone. And that you couldn't do so easily in Skype. Uh, I had used Skype for several years, but you could only see so many screens at once and the video quality was not great. And there wasn't the capability of breakout rooms. So there, there has been a learning curve for me too. And um, so that's been fun to explore that and to see what it can do. That's been, for our program, been great for pedagogy because we've been doing a lot of work on our Sunday afternoon classes where I will say, okay, everybody comes up with a lesson plan and I'm gonna put you with a partner. And I usually pair somebody weaker with somebody more advanced. So a newer student with a, um, an older student and they get together in a breakout room and they can be guinea pigs for one another. The older person can give some guidance to the younger person. And so far the feedback has been really positive for that and I'm really grateful that we have that technology because there's something kind of um, tricky about presenting your lesson for uh, for the head of the program that's a little bit intimidating and this takes away some of that edge it can just be oh I, I have a colleague that I can share ideas with and we can kibitz about it and then when it's time I can present it because I've had a lot of practice I think that's really yeah, great. Yeah, I remember Dow Crow's lesson planning for the first time when you're learning about what are the components that make a Dow Crow's lesson. There's so much that you have to think about, and it takes so much time when you first get started at developing just a simple lesson plan. But a lot of times t in talking through it with someone, you, you discover for yourself things, oh, I should have noticed that or I could have found that where it's easier to do with someone, like you're saying, someone who is more of a peer than, for example, you. As, as inviting as you are, Jeremy. <laughs> well, I do try to be gentle. <laughs> but you know, I, mean, I think it's, what, but to speak to that, because this, this is part of the, the struggle, I think, for Del Crow's teachers when we first start, but even as we develop, um, we put so much of our heart and our passion and our soul into a lesson plan. And, um, and my objective always when I try to give a, um, a critique or I try to give feedback to somebody is to try to nurture them. That, to point out the things that they're doing well and also to guide them into thinking in other ways that um, might be more Delcrozian in design. And, um, but it doesn't matter. Uh, you can be as gentle as possible and because of the, the, the personal nature of this work, sure. that can just sometimes be tricky to hear. 
and um, and and I can certainly say I was one of those students. Sure. So. <laughs> We've all oh, been there. We've, we've, uh, yeah, we've all been there it's at one point or another. Yeah. Jeremy, I was following a thread on Facebook. Um, Manuel Sasueta started. He was our uh, guest on our last podcast. And he was talking about um, the difference between a skip and a and, and another types of skips. Like he was discussing, I think, ternary versus binary skips, which would be like a triplet skip as opposed to a 16th note skip. And I, I kind of jumped in right away because I saw it right when he posted it and I, and I weighed in, but you had some, uh, some pretty um, specific thoughts about it. And I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about that for the purposes of this podcast. So what do you, how do you approach skipping with a class? I love the subject of skipping. I think that the skip is so interesting and it has so many possibilities. But at its basic nature, a skip is always gonna start with a step forward and then a hop where you land back on that same foot. So for instance, you might step with your left foot and then you hop into the air and then you land on that left foot. Then you would step forward with the right foot and you'd hop into the air and then you'd land on that right foot. So it always goes left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right. So that's the basic premise of a skip. But the rhythms that you can use to showcase a skip are wide and fast. So there are so many different possibilities. Delcroze wrote in his um, book, Eurythmics Art and Education, an article on plastique anime. And um, it's, I think it's called The Technique of Moving Plastic. And, and in that, uh, that book, there is a whole set of um, diagrams that describe different ways of leaping and different ways of skipping. Yeah, I found that the Dalcro's writings are sometimes difficult because they often came in like, uh, you know, like compilations and they were, um, you know, translated in several different volumes and here and that. I've, I found it difficult to actually wrangle all of his, all of his writings. Well, just to be clear, these books did not come out as volumes in, in his um, experience. Like they, they were collections of articles throughout his life and they were eventually translated. So right. most people know this one, Rhythm, Music and Education. Uh, for a lot of people, this is a green colored book. And then this book that I'm referring to um, is Eurythmics Art in Education. And I believe this one right now is out of print, um, mm. but it is, uh, it is great. And if anybody ever wants it, they just have to email me and I have it in PDF form. Oh, you so, heard it first here. That's right. <laughs> but on page 24 in that article on the technique of moving plastic, there's a whole series of, of pictures and they're just, oh, yeah, they're, they're just gorgeous. I mean, really exquisite um, sketches. And uh, there are various forms of leaping and various ways of skipping. Um, and this article, by the way, is required reading for my students because I think it's so important to, to read this, this particular article. It's just fantastic um, because it really goes into the detail. And sometimes I think that people get a little confused with Delcros because he wasn't specific about saying, this is step one, this is step two, this is step three. First you do this, then you do that, then you do such and such. But he was very specific 
about his ideas. And movement wasn't just, oh, whatever you want to do is fine. No, no, no. I mean, it's very, very detailed, and it was complicated um, for him. And I think that uh, um, he did his very best to try to be clear and yet precise. So I really appreciate this, um, this volume. But those pictures are great, and they refer to this idea of skipping. And so the thing is, is that the way that a lot of people skip is, um, is sort of this natural sort of feeling that has a um, more of a lilt. That's sort of a feel. And it's, um, it's absolutely a compound meter skip. There's no question. It is totally in compound meter. The beat is divided into three. Um, and that kind of a skip is, I mean, it could be any one of those pictures that you see in there without reserve, I would say that. But then there's also other kinds of skips. And there are some that are where you spend more time on the ground. So for instance, that has a lot more weight to it. But there still is a teeny little hop that you could find in that music. Could you hear it? Where there was yeah. that little moment where you might lift off the ground? Are, is there more than one way to step that? Of course there is. There's, sure. there's lots of ways, but, um, but you could do it that way. You could do it where you have a little step, hop step, hop step. And I think that's really, uh, really interesting. And then there's also the other kind of skip that is quite um, vigorous, I think, that has this um, really vertical feeling where it's uh, um, more of this style. which really makes you want to lift straight into the air with every single um, mm -hmm. sound, I think. And then land, so you land, you, you lift on the, the long sounds and then you land on the shorts and then push off again on the long. Um, it has a very vertical feel to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are, those are some, those are just three. And then there is this other kind to me, which is kind of fun, um, that I learned first as an English uh, an English skip, which is just a step hop, step hop, but it doesn't have an uneven feel to it. So, um... like that is quite nice and uh but it doesn't have a sense of being uneven no in french they would call that the le cloche pied 
And so they, it's the idea of ding dong in one foot and ding dong in the other. So it's ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. quite nice. And there's lots of piano literature that does everything that I just played. Jeremy, isn't there also a type of skip that DSR students do that moves sideways? And is that any different in terms of how you play for it? Or is that mostly different in how we move to it? Right. So that's a that's a total um, kind of departure from the skip. So like I was saying before, the skip is always a step and then a hop of some kind. Step and, the, and a hop. Got it. A step and a hop. And yeah. either it's ternary, so... etc. Um, it always is going to be something of that nature. Um, if it's ternary, if it's binary... then it's gonna have that really vertical feel. And that one that I just played is the one that might lift up pretty mm -hmm. high. Mm -hmm. And then there's also this one that might stay on the ground longer. Something like this. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. those are those two or three different types that I would say are all in the genre of the, of the skip. But then we start talking about the pas chasse. And the, the chasse is, um, for lack of a better phrase, it's a step and then a slide. So it's step, slide, step, slide, step, slide, step. And you can slide sideways, you can slide backward, or you can slide forward. But the pas chasse um, is still a rhythm that fits with the skip. It still is a crucic event. It happens on the beat, and um, and it most of the time feels most of the time pretty ternary. It's possible to do a chasse as a um, as a as a as a binary beat, but most of the time mm -hmm. it feels really ternary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's how that goes. Um, in the United States, however, we oftentimes end up teaching that chasse as a gallop. Mm. And that is not actually um, how I was taught a gallop when I was in Switzerland. Um, when I was in Switzerland, I learned a gallop that really looks more like what a horse does when they gallop. Um, the knees come up into the air and it's quite circular and the arms move and mimic the, the hooves of the horse. So yes, it has this really round and circular tidum, thing. Tidum. That's exactly right. Now, what's interesting is that if you listen to a horse gallop, you could hear <laughs> this. Um, that sort of sound. And sometimes you're going to hear it as. But most of the time when I, when I, I mean, I grew up on a farm and we, we, our horses would gallop. It, it, it felt ternary to me. That's my memory of it. It did not mm. feel binary. So you can find lots of literature that will say gallop, and mm. it will actually be a binary version of that. Mm. But for instance, if you look at the Schumann Opus 68, there's a great little example in there that does exactly this.
something of, of that nature. Sí. And it, you could really feel that, the energy. But in all cases, because of the way you move that, you don't move it crucically. You have to take a little push off the ground to get going that's mm. different from a skip. It's a little sort of a, uh, a little pickup. That's all best way I can say it, but it's definitely sure. anacrusic. And there's a little um, lift that happens before you start. Mm. And because of that, the gallop is tr traditionally uh, done as an anacrusic gesture. Mm. Now, are there other ways of doing this? Yes, there are. I don't think that this is a, an ironclad discussion, but it offers a really great alternative to, um, to teaching anacrusis in a, in a very easy and fun way, because then the children can really hear, oh yes, I hear ta-tum, 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 as opposed to tum, ta-tee which it's very different. And so you can actually create activities where you have... Where you can make that happen, where you can really feel the difference in the middle. I shifted from right. the skip to the gallop. And that's great, because one of it is highlighting that anacrusic nature. So mm -hmm. that's how I teach it at my school. So that way we have that as a tool for teaching um, children or adults for that matter. So Jeremy, well, I mean, just to kind of put in some summation, why does the Dalcro's work put so much emphasis on skipping? It feels like skipping is really a centerpiece of, of the work, uh, something we do a, a great deal. Why do you think that is? You know, that's a great comment. I, and I, I honestly think that the skip is so important because it, it's one of the ways in which we really use gravity in a very um, directive and purposeful fashion. Gravity, to me, is one of the essential elements of what makes movement purposeful. Um, Delcro's always talked about time, space, and energy, and I mm -hmm. totally agree with that. I kind of wish he would have added this fourth one called weight because weight is a byproduct of, of, of gravitational pull. And I feel like the way that we use weight directly affects how we feel music in our bodies. And it is that relationship with weight that we're trying to capitalize on in the hall to impart information to students. And the skip is one of those ways that gravity is very dynamic. <laughs> If you don't have it, it's very obvious. If there is a problem, it's very obvious. And it's also something that, that people learn generally from a very young age. They learn how to do it. And so that's great. Um, it's a super useful tool. But I also really love to teach the leap. Um, anybody that's had a class with me <laughs> for very long knows that I like to live in the air. And one of the reasons why I like that is because, again, it gives you really powerful information. Um, to me, there is nothing like feeling a syncopation through leaping. Because mm -hmm. when you feel that departure off the ground and you are able to feel extension in through the core of your body moving forward and up in space, when you land, that landing gives you a ton of information. And it gives you all kinds of um, momentum that is not the same as just, let's say, walking. It's just a very different type of momentum. So 
So yeah, I think the skip and the leap are very important parts of the um, Delcro's vocabulary. Um, it's why you would see it in that article that I was um, discussing. And, um, and I think that it's, um, it's just important to realize that there's so many ways to do it. And all of those different ways um, correspond to different affects in music. And that's awesome. You know, that gives us all mm -hmm. kinds of interesting perspectives. Yeah, I think about it maybe as a way to explore nuance, you know, um, be, to, to differentiate between those different skips is a great way to just really become sensitive to the very slight differences in, like you said, weight and time and energy and um, you know, I, I think the skip is a great portal into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And again, it's one of those things that people learn. Um, it's oftentimes a part of like any kind of um, PE curriculum, if there is such a thing at, at, a, at a school. I certainly had that growing up. What I think is really funny though, or not funny haha, -ha, but funny ironic, is that there are mm -hmm. kids that don't know how to do it. And mm -hmm. I've certainly had adults that don't know how to do it. And this is where having that technical knowledge is critical. What yes. are you feeling in your body? How does that feeling relate to the music? And how do those things work together? I can remember one of the first times that I had a kid that couldn't skip. And uh, I remember just looking at this little being and thinking, oh my gosh, what do I do now? What do I do now? And I was so grateful for having the type of training that said, okay, take, take a step. And now we're gonna do a little hop. So step and then you hop. Okay, great, awesome, let's just do that again. Mm -hmm. And what's funny about that is that that relationship of saying we're gonna break it down into one little sliver and we're gonna repeat it, we're gonna repeat it, and then we're going to connect it and then we're going to make that connection happen and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it is exactly a metaphor for practice this is exactly what every artist does in a practice room when they woodshed they just go in and they knock it out and they break it down and they isolate whatever the trouble is and i think that when we do that for kids we model for them for the rest of their life what music making really is mm -hmm. and how they can problem solve, giving them ways of doing that that is manageable and uh, useful. Thank you, Jeremy. It was so thank nice you. to have you on our podcast, The New Dalcrosian. Sure, thank you for having me. I think what you guys are doing is so wonderful, by the way. I just wanna say that. I think it's so good that we are seeing um, newly minted Delcrosians who are saying, what can we do to bring this work into the 21st century in a way that is manageable and it is interesting and is um, fun for that matter. <laughs> you know, how fun is it to be able to put together a podcast and to make that something that people can here all around the world yeah. and that's really powerful so thank you, thank you so much it means a lot coming from you thank, thank you. you Jeremy yeah.
mean, that was such a dense interview. There was so much there to unpack. Um, when I was editing it, it was really a challenge to, you know, to really sift through all of it because there was just mm. so much information. Jeremy is just a fountain of Dalcro's knowledge and talent. And it was, uh, you know, we could have probably spoken for hours, but um, I hope everybody enjoyed that. You feel free to check out the Facebook page, email the new Dalcrosian at gmail.com, and we can set you up with uh, some more information about Jeremy or what he has going on. But before we go, I just wanted to point out that as we record this interview, Lauren is wearing a walrus costume. I am. And That's true. And I, I am not 100% sure why. Uh, it was uh, it's not Halloween. made clear to me. Come on, Anthony. Oh, is this Halloween. a Halloween thing? Oh, yeah, okay. next Saturday. So we're recording this part on Monday before Halloween. And uh, I uh, taught my Dalkras class this afternoon wearing a walrus suit. I was not at all distracted by it. I was proud of myself as uh, we got through the interview and I kept a straight face. Tusks and all, huh? <laughs> all right. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time on the new Dalkrosian. Do you have any thoughts for us? Suggestions for a new topic? We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at thenewdalkrosian at gmail.com or like us on Facebook. 